0: Afternoon, folks. Uh, Georgia's going to want to kill me for doing this because when I do these little recordings, uh, she prefers me to do it with natural light. However, seeing as it's December and even in the early afternoon, there is no natural light. I'm just doing this thing here in the office, which is a new location, actually, for me. Uh, I'm having to do this because we had another sort of miscommunication. We lost uh, a recording from a couple of Sundays back, and so we're going to talk real quick here about Nehemiah Chapter 2. Uh, really the second half of Nehemiah chapter 2. We were talking about verses 9 through the end of the chapter, so I'll read that and then we'll we'll talk about it. Uh, this is Nehemiah speaking. He says, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the Dragon's spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, And also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the work, the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite's servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem i want to start by talking about my pet peeves if georgia has a pet peeve about uh, natural lighting in my videos uh, i have a new pet peeve the latest of my many pet peeves which is diagnostic fees which is when they they basically uh, charge you to tell you what's wrong with something but they don't actually fix it Um, so we bought a car about a year ago, and a few months back, the passenger side window broke. And when I, what I mean by that is, it, it, first it wasn't opening correctly, and it wasn't sealing quite right. And then one day when I went to roll it up, I heard a pop and a crack inside the door. And when the window came up, it was just cracked all the way through. Which seemed like a design failure to me, and I, I didn't think I was responsible for this. I still don't think so. Uh, but after taking the car to a couple shops, I ended up having to take it to the dealership and they took the car overnight and the next day they called me back and they said uh yeah it turns out your windows broke and i'm like thanks i I could have told you that and i'm pretty sure i did tell you that in approximately those words uh when i called you about it in any event they ended up charging me 200 dollars for the privilege of telling me what i already knew um i'm not even gonna bother getting into what they were asking to charge to fix it Uh, anyway I I did hate paying for this diagnosis, but I I know it had to be done uh, because they wouldn't have known for sure what was broken, what parts they needed until they looked up close. And you can't fix anything if you're not willing to look at the problem head on. And that's true in a lot of things. You, you, You can't often fix things from a distance, right? Um, It's hard to fix things over the phone, uh, and you don't fix things just by complaining about things either, and and you can't fix things if you don't know what parts are needed, and you don't convince the person that they need to get the work done. You know, restoration requires uh, looking squarely at the problem, and and that's what Nehemiah has to do in today's passage. Uh, He knows we've read in previous passages uh, from talking to his brother actually in chapter one that, that jerusalem is in bad shape he already knows that but that's not good enough he needs to see it for himself um and i'm one of three brothers myself and i know that we're all kind of prone to exaggeration when we're talking to each other uh our wives would probably attest to that um and when we tell things especially when we're telling a negative story it tends to get worse in the retelling you know because that kind of makes it funnier maybe or more dramatic or something uh, but if Nehemiah is going to do this job correctly, he needs to know what he's up against. He needs to know how bad is this thing really. He needs to kind of see and experience it for himself, uh, especially before he's going to do anything about it. And he has a couple of things going against him right now. One thing is time. Uh, the clock is ticking for him because he had given the king a sort of proposed end date to this project. And not only that, the longer he waits, the city is sitting here exposed. And it, and if he delays, the danger carries on. Um And Nehemiah also has enemies who are going to oppose this project, and they're not going to be quiet about it. And I think, moreover, he's also dealing with apathy in the situation. um, Because the people that he's going to help aren't necessarily looking for any help. Uh, And I say that because no one in Jerusalem has bothered to fix the walls in all these years. They're not even talking about doing it, uh, which means they don't really see the problem because they've learned to live with it. And I think a lot of things are like that. And so they may be in trouble and in shame, but they seem not to realize it. You get used to things when you sit with them for a long enough time. So as far as they're concerned, things are okay. Um, And so Nehemiah Nehemiah has the added challenge of letting them know that they have a problem. And I think that that's similar to the challenge of the gospel. Uh, Because when we present the gospel to people, if you've ever done this, you know that you're offering help to somebody who often doesn't want it, doesn't think they need it. Uh, And they resent you, actually, for offering it. And, you know, when you tell people they need Jesus, the first question out of their mouth is often going to be like, well, why? And then you have to explain to them, well, you have a problem. You have a sin problem that needs solving, and not everybody wants to hear that. So, similarly, Nehemiah has a lot to overcome here, not even mentioning the fact that he's, once again, he's not a mason, he's not an architect, he's a bartender. So he would be keenly aware, going in, of how ill-equipped he is, and, and I bet that made him a little bit insecure and one indicator of that insecurity is actually something that we kind of breezed by from the previous passage, um, uh, because Nehemiah gives very specific dates earlier in the chapter. when he, he, he talks about when his brother brought this bad report from Jerusalem. He gives a, a clear date on that. But he gives another very specific date about when the king finally asked him, like, why are you so sad, Nehemiah? And, and there's a four-month gap between the two things, which means that for four months, Nehemiah was silently praying and planning how he's going to bring this up with the king, and he hid his emotions for four months, working up the courage to talk to the king. And why? I think it's because he knows that the request is ridiculous. Um, And it's to his credit that four months did not drive him into apathy himself, because I think a lot of us get upset about something when we hear about it in the moment, some injustice, you know, we'll get really mad about it, but we kind of cool down over time, especially if the problem is far away. Um, Because we all have our own lives to live and we're busy and it just passes out of your mind. But Nehemiah's grief and anxiety over this thing seems to grow over this time to the point that he can't hide it anymore. And now he's been finally given the power to go do something about it. And the king gave Nehemiah everything he asked for. He's given him uh, an unspecified amount of time off to go do this thing. He's given him two letters, uh, one to the regional governors, letting them know Nehemiah has blessing to be here, and a second letter to the keeper of the forest, which is basically like an open-ended check, like a gift certificate for all the lumber that you're going to need. But more than that, the king also sent, we've learned in verse 9, that the that the king sent troops, it says. It says, I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. So not just pawns, you know, this is, this is like officers and cavalry. And it's starting to look less like just some Jewish bartender on a mission from God like in the Blues Brothers. It, it looks more like official Persian business now. And I think that's why the local people start to get irritated here pretty quickly. Verse 10 says When Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Um, so Nehemiah's appearance with this letter and with soldiers creates instant enemies. Uh, and maybe the top regional governor, the guy who's running like all the province beyond the river, I think he'll do whatever the king says. It's like whatever, no big deal. But the local guys can read between the lines here, but because this guy in MI is coming in and he's horning in on our territory, and just to see, so understand reference. Uh, just geographically, uh, Sanballat is probably from Beth Horan, uh, which is a little north of Jerusalem. Tobiah, we're told, is an Ammonite, and Ammon would be east of Jerusalem in what is today Jordan. That's why the capital of Jordan today is, is still called Ammon. Uh, later in verse 19, we find out that there's a guy, uh, Geshem the Arab, who's also opposed to this project, and Arabia is south of Jerusalem, of course. So Jerusalem is surrounded by these competing governors and you know rulers of various districts and they're all jockeying for power and influence and the impression you get is that judea jerusalem is not really considered its own district not by the neighboring officials i i think they all kind of regard judea as being part of their dependency as it were and so even if ezra had kind of been acting like a sort of governor there for a time he doesn't seem to be recognized by the neighbors and so I think the local governors figure, like, look, we trade and we do business with the Jews. We don't really respect them as their own thing. Uh, the city is defenseless. They have no political power there. They have permission to be there. But basically, as far as the local like officials are concerned, Jerusalem is neutral territory. It's like a trading post. And politically speaking, it's almost like they share jurisdiction there, which, like, yeah, that, that usually works out great, right? Um, but in any which way, they probably all kind of hated each other, you would think, but Nehemiah walks in there and it kind of unites them because he's coming in there and represents even more, more of a problem for them because he's undercutting that power and authority and the reach of their, uh, of their territory. And the soldiers mean essentially, look, there's a new sheriff in town and it implies that Jerusalem under their watch has not been safe and it implies that the welfare of God's people there uh, was not really their concern, which of course it wasn't. Like, And in fact, that's what actually makes them the most offended, is that somebody is here to seek the welfare of God's people. Uh, Nehemiah represents competition. But more importantly, Nehemiah represents the fact that God has not forgotten his people. Uh, God's enemies are never happy about that. The, the welfare of God's people actually angers God's enemies. The, the Hebrew says that Nehemiah is here to seek good for the sons of Israel, and that is offensive to god 's enemies if, if they hate anything as much as they hate God, they hate his people, and so they naturally resent Nehemiah because he is the people 's champion, even if they don 't know that yet and it is political too, uh, because you, you know Ronald Reagan used to say that, uh, that there 's no scarier words in the English language than i 'm from the government, and i 'm here to help I think that 's just a true for local governments, like Nehemiah's coming from the national government with national soldiers. Uh, from the royal palace and he's here to help and that can't mean anything good if you're a local politician because it's like a vote of no confidence in you so after they see the regional governor nehemiah goes to jerusalem verse 11 tells us he was there for three days not a lot of time he's like just getting unpacked right and he's probably there just long enough to disturb the peace because again if you walk into town with armed men representing the king that's going to raise eyebrows and many people are going to be asking questions like who is this guy What's he doing here what is it, what are his intentions and he keeps his lips sealed throughout this he, he 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 was not upfront about any of his intentions and that becomes clear by what happens next when he goes out on this uh, nighttime raid here as it were um, he says I, w- I went to Jerusalem I'm there for three days I arose in the night I and a few men with me I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There's no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by the night by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate, to the king's pool. There was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and I entered by the valley gate and so returned, and the officials did not know where I had gone, what I was doing. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Like... There's a bunch of stuff in there, Um, but it's so strange. Nehemiah conducts an inspection of the wall, secretly and at night. I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I think I'm safe in saying that nighttime's not the ideal time to conduct that kind of an operation. Like, I've done a lot of projects at night on my house and this kind of thing, but I have electricity. Nehemiah does not have that benefit, And, and what's more... If secrecy is the goal, I somehow doubt that means that he's even using torches because that would kind of give the game away, wouldn't it? Um, It would would draw unwanted attention. It might even cause panic. So he goes out at night relying entirely on the moon and stars, and and he takes a handful of men with him, presumably these soldiers that he brought from Persia, and, and he brings one animal, which I assume is a horse. So the goal is complete secrecy and quiet. Uh, he sneaks out by the one gate and he makes a circuit around the entire city and, and he maps it out very neatly marks all the highlights and the landmarks and details of uh, the dragon spring the dung gate which would lead to the city dump which is really nice uh, uh, one place was too narrow for the horse so I had to go around and come up through the valley and I had to climb up the hill again to look at things and I, and ultimately he enters by the same gate that he that he left by which means he saw everything he did a complete circuit and it would have been a grueling night one would have to assume, uh, to silently inspect the entire city wall in the dark had to be quite a trick. And and the walls are are thought to have been about two and a half miles worth of length, but it's not a straight line. And and the ground is not level, it's dark. Uh, So he's going up and down the hill, up and down the mountain, along narrow paths, tripping as you go in the dark here. But even in the dark, he can see that his brother's report is true. It, It really is a mess. It's shameful, and the city is in serious trouble, just as his brother had told him. Now, the obvious question is, why do this at night? Because even a bartender should know better. And the only reason we're given is that he didn't want the people to know, as it says in in verse 12. um, I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. So, now, I can't be sure, but it sounds kind of like I'm not even convinced the guys escorting him know what he's doing. Like, he would just wake him up and be like, hey, boys, let's go. And he goes out on this night ride, you know. And, and he's told no one what God has put in, in his heart to do for Jerusalem. His mission is private. Probably only the king and queen know. And why? I mean, a few thoughts come to mind. Uh, one is the possibility that Nehemiah is demonstrating that this is not driven by public opinion. If it was, then he would go to the people first to get them energized about the project. But the true kingdom vision has only one source, and that that is God. And so Nehemiah starts not with speeches, but by going to inspect the situation and start making a game plan for the rebuild. But also in the process of doing this, he also demonstrates how easy an invasion would be right now. Because after all, he just went out at night with soldiers and managed to circle the entire city and no one saw him. No one said a word, and no one tried to stop him. He, he just demonstrated and proved how much danger they're really in. Uh, but I also love what he says here, because he makes explicit what we've been saying. And I made this argument that Nehemiah's broken heart for, for Jerusalem is really a gift from God. And he says it explicitly here himself. He says, God put this on my heart to do. This mission, this vision, is not my own. Uh, It wasn't my idea. I wouldn't have even thought of it. God laid it on my heart. I can't shake it. And that is really how mission and vision works in God's kingdom. It starts when God lays something on the heart and he raises up leaders who are burdened with that vision. And it is a burden partly because it's not necessarily shared. Because remember, no one in Jerusalem is worried about the wall, apparently. like They're not asking for help. But God has laid it on Nehemiah's heart to rebuild this thing and to seek the welfare of God's people, even if they don't get it. Um, So when he returns from the inspection, he states everything much more explicitly, starting in verse 16. uh, Or I'm sorry, 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. It does say there, though, in the previous verse, I'm sorry, in verse 16, when he says that he still hasn't told the rest who are going to do the work. That phrase there raises some ethical questions, I think. you know If God's laid this vision on, on Nehemiah's heart, and he can't do it alone which means the hands that are going to bring this thing to a reality are not his own hands, right? He's going to need the support of the whole community, but he tells none of them about it. No one knows what he's doing, not the Persian officials, the Jews are in the dark, the priests and the nobles. Uh, But that last phrase of verse 16, that's what, what takes all. It covers everybody, like every laborer in the city, every kid who's going to carry water, every wife who's going to make lunch for this project or whatever. Like none of the people who are going to actually make this happen know anything about it. Nehemiah's vision is a gift from God, and no one in Jerusalem is looking for it. Many of them are going to maybe resent it, you would think. So, was Nehemiah right to conceal this mission? I mean, I understand it. Maybe they weren't ready to hear it, a lot of the people. Maybe they needed Nehemiah to expose the problem first. And I think it sometimes is the case that God's people are not particularly interested in God's plans. Um, I know that's true of me. I I think that unless God's plans happen to align with what we already want to do, (laughs) we're not that excited about it. Um, If his idea is going to take a lot of work, if it offends our sensibilities, if it's going to create tension with our neighbors, if it's going to mean uncomfortable changes, if it means the wrong people are going to be in charge of it, uh, then we begin to question, how can that possibly be from God? Uh, So maybe the people weren't ready. And maybe Nehemiah's night rider inspection was designed to make a case really um he wanted to be able to demonstrate that this mission and vision are necessary. um God's people needed to know that they were in trouble before they were ready to hear about a solution. They needed to face hard facts before they were ready to take their medicine and and that's where Nehemiah goes next uh, now that he has seen this destruction and danger and the shame up close he's ready to make public what god had privately laid on his heart and once he articulates the problem he can unveil the vision that god has given him so yeah again looking at verse 17 rather um, you see the trouble we're in how jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned come let us build the wall of jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision so nehemiah says look things are bad but it doesn't have to stay that way He doesn't present the vision as a negative thing, but as a positive. He says, come, let us build. The basic message is, let's do this thing. Like, we don't have to sit in shame. Let's go fix it. And and he's not calling them to, like, an arrogant self-confidence or self-reliance in this process. He encourages them by telling them what God has been doing. Look at verse 18. He says, and I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. So Nehemiah says, yes, things are bad. They're worse than you know, but listen to what God has done for me. And listen to what the king said. This is what he's about to do for you. It's not a call to despair, it's a call to action and faith. And what do they do? They rise up and strengthen their hands. And I love that line. It's one that gets repeated in this book. And it's not a macho, man-centered thing. What strengthens their hands is Nehemiah's message, which is the word of God. Their hands are not strengthened for their own benefit. The Hebrew says their hands were strengthened for good, meaning they're ready to go do the good things that God has called them to go do. So what sells them on the vision of a bartender? It's that they see the problem, that's, that's part of it, but they also see the hand of God. Uh, they see what God has already been doing and what he's promised to do going forward, and now they're excited. They're, they're, their hands are ready for the work, not because it's going to be easy, but because the work is good, and because God's hand is good. And and as the chapter closes, we see the kind of resistance that they're going to face in the process. And it's not mostly physical threats or intimidation. It comes in the form of mockery and false accusations. Looking at verse 19, it says, When Sambalat the Haranite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? God's enemies don't always attack the mission with violence. Um... They don't need to throw punches if mockery will suffice, let's be honest. Um, And I I said this before when we were talking about the Sermon on the Mount, but I think there's a reason why Jesus reserves a blessing for those who endure mockery. Um, When he says in the the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. The enemy uses mockery and accusations because he knows those are often more effective than physical intimidation. And we're people who live by the word. Uh, And so I think false words and slanderous words sting, they hurt. And so it is that we see God's enemies mocking and jeering God's people. Like, do you guys know how ridiculous you look? You know, uh, you're really going to rebuild this whole wall with zero know-how and under the management of a bartender. Like, oh, that's going to be great. Can't wait to see that. And then the mockery spills into slander. Like, they're rebelling against the king, is what they say. Like, the rough translation of this whole thing is like, ooh, you guys are going to be in so much trouble. And if you're a Jew listening to this speech, like, you might hesitate, I would think. Because these guys, like, they say the plan is not only crazy, which is obvious, and we already know that, but it's also rebellious. They're saying you could get in serious hot water with the king for doing this thing. You know, on the other hand, the stranger who just walked in and says he's the king's bartender says the whole thing's fine. Like, sure, we've only known him three days, and he has, a, but he has a kind face, you know. Who should we believe? Um, but I love how Nehemiah responds to this thing in verse 20. He says, it says, Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. I want you to notice that Nehemiah doesn't appeal to the authority of the king. He appeals directly to God. Because who's the source of this revival? God alone. The king's an instrument, he's not the source. We're not here because the king said so. That's not the primary reason. And that's so counterintuitive for us. Like, the natural response here would be to say, like, no, 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 this is not treasonous. Like, here's my letter from Artaxerxes the king. He says we're cool. Why doesn't Nehemiah do that? I think it's because these local governors, they know they're lying. They already know about the letter from the king. They heard about it earlier. They're not making a legal case here. This entire speech of theirs was designed to discourage the people. They're not defending the king's honor. They're attacking God's people. They're hitting them in the in their core, and Nehemiah refuses to go down to their level. He doesn't even mention the king and how like, hey, look, I'm practically best buds. You know, like his defense is not Artaxerxes is my homeboy, and instead he lays down a challenge and boast. In the power of God, he says, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. And the translation there is like, this: there's nothing you can do to stop this thing. Why? Because the vision is from him, and he's going to make it happen. And I also like the final swipe that Nehemiah takes at them. He says, the God of heaven will make us prosper, we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Like, in other words, who are you to challenge God's people? You have no portion, no right, no claim. The Hebrew for claim here literally means memorial. They have no memorial in Jerusalem. In other words, to say, like, this is our city. Our fathers are buried here. We built the city. Our people built the city, not you. Not one monument in this city commemorates you, and it never will. You guys have no right. And frankly, no one's going to remember you in this city. And make no mistake about it, like, verse 20 there, like, them's fighting words. Like, Nehemiah, he throws down the gauntlet here. And it sets the tone for the rest of the coming conflict, the whole book. Like, he may be just a bartender, but he knows when to pick a fight. And he knows that when God's in your corner, you can talk big. And you can throw the first punch. And so what's the takeaway? What's the long story short? What I want you to pick up from this is that vision is a gift from God. And that his mission cannot be thwarted kingdom vision for the people of God is not something that we dream up for ourselves Uh, God lays it on the heart he stirs up the revival there first and then he raises up leaders to make it happen and he doesn't necessarily do this because his people are asking for it the people of Jerusalem didn't even see the problem they had lived with the trouble and the shame so long they didn't see it anymore but God had a vision for their good His vision is always for our good, whether we're looking for it or not. And once that vision is laid on the heart, it doesn't go away. The mission never fails, because how can it, really, right? God is the author and finisher of the mission. And it might be laughable to outsiders, and it might even feel scandalous to the insiders. One could say that it could be a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But that doesn't mean it won't work. For the same reason that the mission of Christ on the cross wasn't a failure, even when it looked like one. Uh, It was the greatest achievement in history because it opened the way back to the Father. God's vision always wins out in the end, and that is good news. His hand is on his people for good. And that means we have a portion and a right and a claim in Jerusalem. And we all need vision. That's true for the American church. It's true for the PCA. it's, It's certainly true for us at LVP. Um, that's how the Holy Spirit operates in the church he gives vision and we need vision which only comes from him we need God to lay on our hearts what he wants us to do now I believe firmly that our mission field at LVP is this city this region our our vision is stated to be that we want to be an anchor of the reformed faith of the the pure gospel here in Allentown proclaiming the gospel and making disciples and planting churches in the valley and beyond and like reaching the people of the valley and if this is from god if he has given us that vision then maybe it's time for us to say let us rise up and build and perhaps the time has come for us to strengthen our hands for the good work if he's given us this vision to reach this city If that is his vision and not just a whim of of our fancy and our imagination then we cannot fail Uh, he who gives the vision makes it prosper and as nehemiah essentially tells the naysayers there's no guts no glory the the claim and the memorial goes to those who build not the enemy and success is sure not because of our strength but because of the vision and the mission and the gospel itself are from god it's not about us it's about what he is doing So I would encourage you to take this partly as a challenge, but also an encouragement. Uh, The gospel is the mission of the church, and it cannot fail. (laughs) Uh, The gospel means we don't need to be in trouble or in shame anymore. God has saved us, so let's get to work. And my prayer is that God would lay this mission on our hearts, and that he would strengthen our hands for the work, and that his hand would be on us for good, so that we may have a share in the glory. So let me pray for us. Gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for raising up a leader like Nehemiah to come and and speak to your people, Lord, and to, Lord, that you lay vision on his heart, Lord, but that that vision spreads to the rest of the people. Lord, and I know that first took him looking the trouble right in the eye, face to face, and exposing it to the people so that they would know that they needed help and that they needed vision. Lord, we thank you that your hand is for good on your people and that you don't leave them in trouble and in shame, and that ultimately you did not do that in the grand scheme of things. When you sent Jesus for us, Lord, it was because you did not want to leave us in trouble and shame, and you had a plan and a mission and a vision, and that was the vision you set in in your son. So we thank you for that, Lord. We pray that you would encourage us. Lord, teach us to follow the vision that you have set, Lord, to, to spread the gospel and to see you glorified throughout this city and this valley. We ask this for the sake of your Son. Amen and amen. Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll hope to talk again soon. Thanks. God bless. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.